Thank you, Brother David and choir. You have definitely plowed the ground for what we are about <coughs> to hear. <coughs> in the times in which we live, there is epidemic confusion, not only about the where and how and who of worship, but about the function of Christianity in the world at large. And you and I both know this to be true with so many different designs of a worship service or people that come together supposedly under the name of the Lord to worship. We know there are so many different things to think about. And the truth is, how you worship God speaks louder to your understanding of who He is than any creed or theology that has ever been written. That is the reality. Ravi Zacharias has reminded us that if you are bored with God, then heaven doesn't even have a better alternative for you. It be a sad thing for us to be bored with the God of eternity that we just sang about when talking about Him being our vision. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Philippians 3, verse 3, reminds us that one of the distinctives of being a believer is that you worship the Lord. Listen to chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision. Paul is defending what it means to be a child of God. And circumcision is language for truly being redeemed. Not outward circumcision under conformity to the law, but inward circumcision of the heart. And Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Did you note that one of the distinctives of being of Christ and saved is that you will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Paul says that true believers will worship the Lord in this manner. We're in the book of John this morning, John chapter 4. You can make your way there, and as you do, I want to talk to you a little bit more. There are three musts in the book of John, M-U-S-T-S. The first one is found in John 3, 7. You must be born again. Then there's a second one found in John 3, 14. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And the third one is found in our passage for this morning, John 4, 24. God is spirit, and worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Karl Barth once said, Christian worship is the most momentous, most urgent, and most glorious action that can take place in all of human life. And I must say to you today that it is the highest function that our souls can be involved in. But here's the deal. There is a void inside of all of us. And we try to fill that void with a variety of things in the world in which we live. Think about that for a moment. We try to fill this restless void in the human soul with money. How's that worked out for you? Or sex, or sports, or social media, or... Facebook, iPhones, iPads. Now, 
there is a characteristic of all of these things. They, they sound very worldly in the face of be thou my vision. Don't they? Now, we had this practice last week. This means yes. This means no, right? You've got to respond to me or I will start all over from the very beginning. But it sounds worldly. Now, think about it. all these things mentioned are undeniably religious. You think, oh, that's not true. Well, it is true because we are all worshipers, and God has made you that way. Now, the object of your worship is the key, right? But he's made you a worshiper, and it doesn't matter how secularized our culture has become. You're still a worshiper. You worship something in your life. That desire to worship is irrepressible in everybody in this building. No one is left in exclusion from that statement. All of you were made by God to be worshipers. And ultimately, he made you to worship him. He didn't make mankind because he was lonely. Don't believe that. He made mankind to make you a worshiper. John Calvin reminded us some 500 years ago that the heart is an idol factory. And we're really, really good at cranking out new idols, right? To try to fill that void that's inside of all of us. That satisfaction. We chase those things and we crank out new idols every single day to fill that void in us and seeking satisfaction. And we're beginning today a series called The Father Seeks True Worshippers. And what I want you to see today is where it all begins. Because if you're saved today, it's where it began with you. And me. And that's the fact that God is on a hunt to transform broken and idolatrous people and make them into worshipers. That's the goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of you are thinking, I thought the goal of the gospel was for me to escape hell. Well, folks, that's not the main reason God saved you. God saved you so that you will be a worshiper. Heaven is an awesome benefit, isn't it? I go to prepare a place for you. We think about that. But folks, in the here and now, God has saved you and transformed you to be a worshiper. And that's what this text is about. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I want you to think about God correctly today. So we're going to look at a classic text. You approach this with humility. You always should approach preaching the Word of God or teaching the Word of God with humility. But when we read this classic text, it just pulls on our heartstrings. And we know that we're walking through the holy of holy of text of Scripture by the way it's addressed to us. John chapter 4. Are you ready for the reading? All right. If you're able, you don't have to, but if you're able, would you, would you stand up for the reading of the text? And I'm going to use this passage for a number of our sermons, especially two or three of them. So I hope that you'll keep it in your mind. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parenthetical reference, although, John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. I love the way the ESV says it. The old King James says, and he must needs go through Samaria. I hope your wheels are already turning if you're in tune with divine sovereignty. 
It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near to the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That means noontime. It was lunch. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Parenthetical reference again. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask of him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. Where's your bucket, right? And the well is very deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? She's going to give a historical revision. We already know about the well. And she says, he gave us the well. As Samaritans. Well, anyway. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty. I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Kind of humorous, right? Oh, fathers, our fathers, she's saying this, worship on this mountain, Gerizim. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, check this out, and now is here, and and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah, Christos, is coming. He who is called the Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. To God be the glory. You may be seated. Let's divide this text up into three divisions. First, Jesus overcomes racial, religious, and social barriers through sovereign grace. Amen? That's what he does in this particular text. And he has a ministering heart. And we can all learn so much evangelistically just listening to how Jesus wins the woman at the well. But he has a ministering heart. And that's, when you look at verses 1 through 9, that is the predominant thematic structure of what's going on is that he is overcoming racial, religious, and social barriers, and he's doing all of this by sovereign grace. And if you read it with an ear to hear and a mind engaged with the Scripture, you immediately began to think about the fact that this is a divine encounter. This is not an accident. Jesus is leaving, and he puts this place in his, this place is already in his mind, and he's leaving and going to it. Our Lord interacts 
with someone that we would not think is a possible candidate to be a worshiper. What a lesson for all of us when we look out over this world of lost people and we think, well, who's a target for the kingdom? Who, who, who should be allowed to enter the kingdom? And so we, we think about these things, and Jesus is teaching us here that this woman is definitely not a prospect the way we would view a prospect for the kingdom, especially in American life. And Jesus is going to lead her to the threshold of the most important thing in the universe, God and the worship that is due to Him. Jesus is leaving Judea. He's heading to Galilee. And He drops this tidbit of information for us as He's traveling. He passes through Samaria. If you're a Bible student, if you've had a Sunday school lesson, you know that there were alternative routes that lead from Judea to Galilee. And guess what the Lord of glory does? He takes the route that no one else would take. If you were a Jew, you would never take the route that Jesus took on that day. But he did it because of divine providence, and he did it to overcome barriers. And there was present in that day incredible racial and religious and social barriers when it came to Samaritans. I hope you know the history of this. If you've read your Old Testament, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians took over the northern capital of Damascus. You remember Jonah? Raise your hand if you're awake. Y'all remember Jonah? Jonah did not want to obey God and take the gospel to the, to the Ninevites. Why? Because of the Assyrians. He hated them. I mean, they would literally scalp you. They delighted in putting someone on the gallows and ripping their skin off of them. So that's a different perspective on Jonah, right? Talking about crossing barriers to go down and give the gospel and offer them repentance. But God has a missionary heart in the book of Jonah. And here, here we have in 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in and they, they capture Damascus. And here's something they did. They were ruthless, but they were also brilliant. What they did was they practiced bringing in foreigners that they had captured before and bringing them into new conquered territory. And what happened was intermarrying. And what it did, the goal was to cut down nationalism and patriotism. We look at our country half the time and we think we have probably less Americans than we've ever had that are really Americans in our country. Well, it, it sucks away nationalism. It sucks away patriotism, right? And so that's what's going on in this particular text of Scripture. Why? Because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They racially were hated by the Jews because they did not come from the real stock of Abraham. Thus, they looked down on the Samaritans. Think about this, not only the racial, but think about the religious connotations. When the day Jesus passed through, there were all these religious tensions. Why? Because the Samaritans were syncretists. That means they brought in as many kind of religions they possibly could alongside of the first five books of the Bible. They loved the Pentateuch, right? They loved the first five books of the Bible. They actually believed there was a deliverer coming. Out of Deuteronomy uh, and Exodus, there is a statement about Moses being a deliverer, and Moses says there's coming a prophet in the future like me. Well, the Samaritans were looking for a redeemer. Thus, she says a Messiah is coming who is called Christ. Are y'all with me? 
Christos, she says those things, but the religious tensions were there because theirs was a smorgasbord of all kind of things. They just grabbed religious beliefs from all over the place and stuck it alongside some of the Jewish teachings. So, therefore, when Jesus passed through, incredible animosity racially and religiously. But what about socially? The writer expects you to have a little bit of understanding as he's moving down through here. Because when they Jew picked this up, they would have known something clearly. If you were a woman, you usually went with other women to draw water. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? When one woman heads to the bathroom, all the women head to the bathroom, right? Well, that was the case. And it was usually early in the morning or late in the evening to miss the heat. But here is a woman coming not with a pack of women, but by herself, and she's coming to draw the water in the middle of the day. That just did not take place. And so, as she does this, it is a reminder that she's also a social outcast. I mean, look at the strikes against this woman. Religious barriers, racial barriers, and social barriers. She's not even accepted among her own Samaritan kinfolk because she has to go and, and draw water. And as she approaches Jacob's well, there is an awesome figure sitting there. And he's wearied from his journey. And his name is Jesus. You say, well, the Son of God is weary. You're exactly right. Because he was very man, a very man. Just like he was very God, a very God. What an awesome understanding. And maybe one of these days we can talk about that. In theology circles, it's called the hypostatic union. Anybody want to sign up for that? Oh, that's funny, isn't it? But here's the deal. Jesus is sitting there. He's very man of very man, very God of very God. And here's what, the, here's what blows away those social norms. He actually speaks to her in public. And not only that, but he says to her, that was crossing one. But then he says, give me water to drink. And think about this. For a Jew, if she lowered the bucket into the water, contaminated. If, if he takes the vessel that's hers and puts it to his lips, contamination. And yet, you say you're a rabbi and you're not mindful of these things. So from a Jewish perspective, from beginning to end in this narrative, everything about it did not set well with a typical Jew who was steeped in Old Testament tradition. But here is the Lord of glory crossing any and all racial social and religious barriers. How are you doing in this regard with the gospel? What's your mindset when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because I want to remind you that except for the grace of God, you'd be lost too. And it has nothing to do with your color, of your skin, or where you grew up, or whatever else. The fact of the matter is, you are just as lost as everybody else in this world without Jesus Christ. No exceptions. So that's the first movement in the text. Crossing all racial, religious, and social barriers through sovereign grace. That's what Jesus Christ is doing. Now he's moving toward the, the issue of worship. That's where this is headed. So don't glaze, glaze over on me like a donut, right? you got to stay with me. Here's the second thing that we learn in the text. Not only is he crossing these barriers, but Jesus offers her complete soul satisfaction through eternal life in Him. Now note that transition in verse 10 of our passage. The Bible reminds us 
that Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God. So he's taking her. She still doesn't have understanding. Granted, she has no idea where he is headed. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was offering it to you, you would say, give me to drink. And I would, give it, I would have given you, what does it say? Living water. Now, I appreciate the songs that we sang today because if you listen closely to the words, then it should have engaged your mind on the principle of living water. It's very obvious that this is over her head at this particular point, yet Jesus wants to take what he has said to her so far, and he wants to focus it on her need. Isn't our God that way? I mean, he knows her real need, right? And he's beautifully turning every aspect of it with metaphorical language, and he's putting the emphasis right where she needs it. And maybe even when you read this today, you may not understand what he means by living water. You may think, well, what exactly is he saying, the gift of living water? Well, the fact of the matter is, the gift of living water is nothing less than God himself. So Jesus Christ is the living water. Jeremiah said, my people have committed two evils. Anybody ever read this? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Jeremiah reminds us, in other words, God himself is the fountain, is living water. And the Jews also had an understanding of the future thing, future idea of ultimate satisfaction in their life. And we think about this sometimes, don't we? Uh, What's it going to be like in the end or in the end times? And Jews would think about this as well. Uh, we We would bask in the fountain of living water. So they would think about this in the progressive sense of the future, but... God is presenting himself. Jesus is presenting himself as the living water. So here he is offering it to her. God was standing right in front of her with absolute full fulfillment of everything ever written about the God of eternity in the book, in the Old Testament. And Jesus is manifest right in front of her. And he's saying, I am the ultimate satisfaction for now and forever. Isn't that incredible? That's what he's saying to her. And if you had a clue... Of who I am, you would ask me, and I would give you this living water. In verse 11, she is perplexed, but she's intrigued, because who wouldn't want some water that doesn't run out? Amen? I mean, who wouldn't want this kind of water? She's intrigued with it. It's pretty tough carrying water back and forth, especially at noontime. Jesus says to her, or she says to him, sir, you don't even have a bucket. And she makes this little historical revision that's totally opposite of what we know took place with Jacob's well. But Jesus doesn't rebuke her at this point. Instead, he continues to turn the whole conversation toward the prospect of her thirst. And he beautifully turns it into a metaphor of desire and craving and longing. Again, that's in the heart of everybody. It's bound up inside of you. And I can just imagine at this point, he's, he points at Jacob's well and he's saying, if you drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. Right? Can't you see him making that kind of symbolic gesture toward it? Drink this water in Jacob's well, you will be thirsty again. But in verse 14, he gives us a remarkable text of scripture. The Bible says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, check this out, will never thirst again. 
Hallelujah for the text of Scripture. And then the Bible says, The water that I will give him would become in him a spring of water welling up. So he, he not only crossed these barriers, but he offers complete soul satisfaction for eternity in him. Not just eternity in the future. We miss that as Baptists. But eternity now. It is now and it is hereafter. So the water I'm talking about, Jesus said, is living water. The gift will totally satisfy a soul's thirst. And once you have this gift giving, given to you, you're going to stop searching for soul satisfaction in all the other places in the world. Why? Because Jesus alone can satisfy. Jesus alone can give you personal satisfaction, quench your thirst, give you water for your parched soul. Only Jesus Christ can do this. Now, both of these images come from the Word of God. The fact that He is the living water and He, he uh, gives you eternal life. But as you know, there's another part to this because Jesus says this water will be a well springing up inside of you unto eternal life. So, do you realize that not only has God changed you and given you eternal life and saved your soul and satisfied you, but He lets you carry this living water to other people to offer it to them so that they too can have eternal life. That's weak. Amen, right? This is exactly what's going on. Let me show you from the Old Testament. Are you ready? Isaiah, if you'll take your copy of the Scripture, or it will be on the PowerPoint. Isaiah chapter 12, uh, excuse me. Let's start at 55, verse 1. We love these verses. I do. You will remember it when I read it. 55.1 Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Come to Jesus. Right? That's exactly what Isaiah is giving us. And then chapter 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. And again, in 44, verse 3, just showing you how both things are true. That you have satisfaction in your own soul, and you are a bearer of that satisfaction to others. Chapter 44, verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering, on your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and, and name himself by the name of Israel. To God be the glory. That's what's going on. And then, let me show you a New Testament reference. John chapter 7. Here's what Jesus says in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, isn't this awesome? Let him come to me. Oh, that's what he's saying to you today. That's your invitation. If anyone is thirsty. In other words, you're looking everywhere for satisfaction of your soul. You haven't found it. You know why? Because only Jesus Christ can satisfy. And he's saying, come to me. And then the Bible says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Does that sound familiar? 
Sounds like John's gospel reminding us of it. Jesus says on the last, he said this on the last day of the great feast. So Jesus says, there's this living water. It's going to satisfy you and it's going to spring up within you so that you can give it to others unto eternal life. By all means. In the passage of scripture, she's pretty quick, isn't she? What an offering. Give me this water so that I'll never thirst again and so I can quit all this hard work of pulling this water and drawing it from the well. And she wants this. And that's the third movement, which begins in verse 16. Jesus now confronts her, and he confronts us with our sinful condition. Is this needed in our world today? Oh, it's frustrating, isn't it? That people think that you can be saved and or join a church, and it really doesn't matter about this issue of sin. We just downplay it. And some of the renowned TV evangelists, TV preachers, go ahead and tell you their names, like Joel Osteen. They don't preach the gospel. They don't, they're hirelings, and they don't preach the gospel. Folks, you have to hear the gospel. And the gospel is that he was delivered for our sins, he was buried. And he resurrected the third day according to the scriptures. He did it because of our sinfulness. And Jesus will take his time to turn the attention and go ahead and tell her the truth about our sin. Right? That's what the preacher's supposed to do, and that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to be mean-spirited, but ladies and gentlemen, you can't be saved until you know you're a sinner. I mean, what are you getting saved from? What's the purpose? Why did Jesus, the exalted Son of God, why did he come down from heaven to begin with? Not because Americans are pretty good people, right? But because we're sinners. And in the text of Scripture, he points that to her. And this is a lesson as well, not to give up on those, even when it seems like they don't have a clue what you're talking about. You ever talk to people and they just glaze over? And you're telling them about the gospel, and you say, you can't be saved by works, and they're just looking at you, strangely. Deer in the the headlight, look, they don't understand Well, you know what? Some of you didn't get it the first time. Some of you didn't get it the first hundred times, right? We know this, but but be patient with people because only God can open the heart's door. Only he can give people understanding. And so maybe she's thinking this is a gimmick. Think that's possible? I mean, you're talking about some water that doesn't run out. It's going to satisfy me. I don't have to draw water. You know, in the United States of America, you go around presenting that kind of water, we're going to say, yeah, right. You should be on that TV show with all the things that we buy, right? Don't look at me so spiritual. Some of you bought that stuff. My favorite one, uh, we use the phrase, this is too good to be true. And maybe she thought about this. My favorite one, and and Paul Putt's got one of these. I saw it in his house. (laughs) It's that instrument that you just, you strap it around your belly. And it doesn't matter how big your belly is. It's an ab thing, and it just shakes. Have y'all seen that one? You can sit in your chair and eat honey buns, and it just... <laughs> right? And it, and it goes away. Yeah. Too good to be true, right? Now, maybe she's thinking this is a gimmick. Maybe she is. It, it's the heat of the day, right? I, I'm going to have to carry this thing back and forth. Do you think the Lord of glory knows her heart? Listen to John. Listen. <laughs> this is amazing. Chapter 2. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name. Ooh, end of story, right? That means we've got a lot of converts. I mean, we've got people saved running out of our ears. Many people believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But listen to this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. You mean God's got a, God can do what he wants to? Yes. They believed superficially because he had signs and wonders that accompanied his ministry, but they didn't believe unto salvation. Furthermore, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And listen to this. Because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in the heart of man. You think the Lord of glory knew what was in this woman's heart? And he knew full well, and so he says, go call your husband. John Piper once wrote, the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. And he's about to wound her to the very core of her being. Go call your husband. Can you imagine her response? Here we are talking about water, and I'm thirsty, and it's going to quench my thirst, and now you're getting personal with me. Yeah, I'm sure she was thinking this. And then she says, I have no husband, end of story. Let's change the subject, by the way. But here's the Lord exposing her brokenness, exposing her continual desire. This is the way she was living her life, people. She was going from man to man, from marriage to marriage. She wasn't just a serial fornicator. She was in the present time, right then, an adulterer. And here is the Lord of glory bringing this about in her life. She's trapped. If you've been a trapper, anybody a trapper in here ever trapped an animal? Well, back in Georgia, they used to tell us that a raccoon will chew off their leg to get out of the trap. Don't you know for sure that this woman would have chewed off her leg at this moment if she could have? Because she was absolutely trapped. And maybe the next line comes across a little humorous. Let's think about that for a moment. I perceive you're a prophet. Isn't that good? And for a Jewish way of thinking, if someone could tell you something about yourself this deep, then supernatural understanding and intuition had to be part of your life. Remember the Pharisees? When Jesus allowed the woman to wash his feet with her, with her hair, what did the Pharisees say? <clears throat> if he was a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this was. Right? So they knew this in their mind, of course. And she's saying, you've got supernatural knowledge into my life, but she quickly moves it into another direction. This is another one of her, probably one of... It's possible that this is a diversionary tactic. She's trying to get the focus off of her adultery and fornication. And he takes it and turns it toward worship. But I want, to, I want you to think about it another way. We, we think that's humorous and tactful for her to say, well, let's just forget about my husband or husbands and the one I have now that's not my husband. And let's move it over to worship. However, think with me for a moment. She had enough Jewish understanding to know that she was in a pickle. She knew she had sin in her life that she couldn't get rid of. And here's what her response is. Should I make an offering in, in Gerizim or should I make my offering in Jerusalem? You know why? Because God requires something of me and I've got to pay the price for it. A sacrifice has to be given. I want to remind you at this point that you can't make enough sacrifice to save your life. It's an impossibility. There's been one final sacrifice for sin, and there will be no more. One thing that reminds us about a, a particular religious sect in this world is that they believe that Jesus is crucified afresh and anew all the time when you take a bloodless mass. Not so. It's not so. Hebrews teaches us that there was one sacrifice for sin for all time, never to be repeated again. And here she is, possibly in her mind, God, I've got to make an offering. Where do I make the offering? He's going to make it. In just a few weeks, 
on Calvary, right? As, as far as the mind of the Father is concerned, that lamb was sacrificed before the foundation of the world, right? And so she's, maybe that's what she's doing. What's God require of me? Now, here we are to worship. Took a while, didn't it? Here we are to begin our series, to understand what God is doing on the hunt for idolatrous and broken people. And here, she says, where are we going to worship? Gerizim or Jerusalem? Some say it's Jerusalem. Some say it's Gerizim. Where is it? And Christ's response is glorious. The hour is coming when you will neither worship in this place or any sacred space. For we must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So the first part about that is the place and time of the future would have been in their mind. The Bible says that in the future every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. We know that in the future, but Jesus will turn it around again and say, and now is the time of worship. So he's not only giving her the time coming where sacred space and all these things will be gone and we'll worship the Lord forever in eternity, but he also as bluntly tells this woman that she's wrong about her worship and she's ignorant about her worship. Both of those are in the connotation of the words. Now that's not real popular in the United States, is it? I mean, folks, Katie barred the door if you tell anybody that they're ignorant about their worship. Uh, Jesus must not have been too up to date with the pluralism of his day, our hour, or ours, right? Because we live in a pluralistic society and as long as it's right for you, it's okay. That's what people think. And you're considered impolite If you pick on anyone else's religion, the only heresy in our day is to call something a heresy. You better say amen. I'm not going to land the plane unless you do, right? The only heresy in our land today is to call anything a heresy. And yet in our text, Jesus stands straight up to her and says, Samaritans, you are wrong in your worship. You're ignorant of your worship. God help us have the kind of boldness that Jesus manifests in this text. To say to people lovingly, No, ma'am, that's not right. This is what the Bible says. Well, I don't believe the Bible. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. This is the truth of the matter. And we must say it. Jesus, by the way, said, I am the, the truth and the life. And no man will come to the Father except for me. If you hold to this belief given through the word of God, then anybody who says there's another way, they're wrong. Y'all understand how how critical this is because you can't be a worshiper today unless you're right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You heard the same songs I heard. You heard the same scriptures I heard. You heard people praying, but that doesn't mean everybody in this building was a worshiper of our God. I hope you understand that. You can't be a worshiper. You can't be a worshiper of God unless you're worshiping through the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are deeply People who say that Jesus is not the only way, they're deeply and eternally and critically wrong. But here's the good thing. They're not irreversibly wrong. Because this woman was wrong. And God made her a worshiper. Amen? And he can make you a worshiper today. I want to say a little bit to our college students. We're so enculturated today that the idea of only one way to heaven, very few people hold that. I'm telling you in your classroom, stand up, stand up for Jesus. I'm telling you, stand up and say that salvation is exclusive, and you've got to believe it because it's in this book, right? 
I, I don't have to stand up here and say, well, this is my personal opinion. It really doesn't matter what my opinion is. This book says that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And you can't worship unless you worship through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. You know what it means? It means that Muslims are wrong. It also means that Buddhists are wrong. And we should love them enough to tell them the truth and not accept their wrongness as rightness for them. And that's what we usually do. Just have your own way. We can't do that if we love the Lord. We can't do that if we know that the God we serve is the only one worthy to be worshipped. All right, two quick applications and we're out of here. Number one, now is the time to worship. Folks, now is the time to worship. That's what Jesus said. He gives it in the present. And what we're doing this morning is greater than anybody could have done anywhere in the Old Testament. You remember when Solomon's temple was dedicated? I mean, what great prayers, they worship, they sang. I'm telling you folks, Jesus Christ is the true temple. He has come in absolute fulfillment. What they did there in shadow and in part, worshiping because of the erection of a new temple. Folks, you've got the temple inside of you. And what you're doing today is greater and more wonderful than anything that could have ever taken place under the old covenant because you're under the new. God hadn't changed, right? But what he has revealed to us about himself was progressive in that point to, to help you see that true worship only comes in the true temple. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. He is the true temple. And as a matter of fact, when he comes and resides in you through the Holy Spirit, you're the temple of God, bought by his spirit. And you can worship him in spirit and in truth. And here's the second thing. Not only is now the time to worship but the Father is seeking you to be his worshiper. Doesn't matter if you're 10, doesn't matter if you're 110, he wants you to turn to him from idols. He wants you to find forgiveness, satisfaction, and eternal life in him because only Jesus Christ can satisfy. And I'm sure that there are several among us today who worship many things other than God. You need to be delivered from the idolatry need to be delivered and find full satisfaction in Christ. Come to the only one who can satisfy your heart. He knows your heart, right? He knows your idols, but he also knows your wounds. He also knows your disappointments. He knows it all. He is a sympathetic high priest. Why? Because he came down from glory, put on human skin, lived and was tempted in all points, yet without sin. There's nothing you go through in life that our sympathetic high priest doesn't know what you're going through. He knows every aspect of that. Come to the only one that can satisfy your heart. He knows your sins. He knows your brokenness. And he knows all your disappointments. And he doesn't say, you know what? Go clean yourself up first and then you can come hang out at the fountain with me. No, he cleans you up. Right? When you come to him, he cleans you up. Amen? You can't clean yourself up. And come hang out at the fountain. It has to be a work that God does. If you're saved, God did not ultimately save you for heaven. He saved you to be a worshiper. My question is, are you engaged in that? Now is the time to worship. Are you seeking? The Father is seeking true worshipers. Today, He's seeking everyone in this building. What did the Israelites do as soon as they came across the Red Sea? They began to sing songs. They began to worship the Lord. It sounded something like this. I will sing to the Lord... For he is highly exalted. Who is like you, Lord? You are my strength and my song. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. In other words, our worship ought to be filled with joy. Nothing wrong with that. It was 
effervescent in here this morning, and that's a good thing. It shouldn't be like a funeral dirge all the time. We ought to express ourselves to God. And some of you dignified little women are sitting in the back. I met you this morning. <laughs> and when we're in here, I'm not just picking on the ladies, but we think that sometimes the church is where we come in and we're dignified. And yes, we're talking about reverential respect for our God that ought to be joyous. And both of those things ought to be there. The fact of the matter is, if I went to a Missouri football game, or if I went to a Cardinals game, and these same little dignified men and women who never say anything in here would do something like this. Blood makes the grass grow. Kill, kill. And you look at them and say, is that the same person that sits in church? And you got a hot dog flying here and popcorn there, and you're just rooting your team on, but you come in church and you're just dead as a hammer. That's not right. Nothing about that is right. You, you ought to be reverential because 97% of the time when the word worship is used in the Bible, it means we're licking the dust of the earth. It doesn't mean we got our chin up and our chest out. You're low before the Lord. But that lowness before him ought to be joyous. Why? Because the hymn writer said it right. My sin, oh the bliss of the glorious thought, that my sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That ought to be your response to the Lord. And here's the deal. That ought to make any dead Baptist shout for joy because of what Jesus does for us. Amen? I hope you're a true worshiper today. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. Lord, I know the hour is late, and we, we traveled over a lot of ground. But, Lord, the truth is, it's highly possible that there are people under the sound of my voice that are not true worshipers. But, oh, Father, they can become true worshipers today. Your word says, if as many as received your Son, to them you gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe upon his name. Lord, for by grace are we saved through faith. That not of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But you demonstrated your love toward us in that while we were still sinners, you died for us. God, you can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. Who's a candidate for eternal life? Anybody in this building who you see fit to save. Lord, for Christians, Lord, help us worship you. Not things in this world. Help us keep our focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The invitation is for you. I'll be down front. Uh, first note, if you know the Lord of glory is calling you to be a worshiper, first note, first song, right? Respond to the Lord. Christians, I think a good place for us to start is on our knees before the Lord and ask Him to help us remain, help us to understand what it means to be a true worshiper. Let's stand to our feet.